He is the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. Can I ask a question, Macho Man? Don't you open your mouth about the best. I'm sorry about that. L.O.B. I can't believe Christmas break is next week already. <laughs> oh, wait. We missed that show. We did. Wait, let me go back to this. I can't believe last week was New Year's. No. No. We are back, actually, finally, after one of the craziest, strangest breaks probably in the history of the sportscasters. And I will explain since we've always been kind of open with what we do and uh, so we were planning on doing one more show f- before we went to break, but the way that Mrs. Caster's concert schedule ended up falling, we weren't able to do one the week before we were going to go on break. Right. So we just said, ah, whatever, we'll go on a little bit of a longer break. We didn't have anything too particularly huge planned anyway. No. So then the next week was Christmas and then New Year's, and then we were going to do a show, and then there was a blizzard. In the city of Buffalo. Yeah, they're calling it something. I can't remember what. Uh, Win- was, winter cyclone, something like that? I, it was two days, basically, where Buffalo was too cold and too snowy for anyone to do anything. Right. It was one of those where like places that never have snow days have snow, had snow days. I heard Florida got part some snow. So po- Polar vortex. Polar vortex, right. So yeah, we had right. that, so we couldn't do a show that week. And then last week we were set to come back, and unfortunately, Miss Caster's grandfather passed away. So that wrecked that week. So now here we are on January 21st, 2014, basically, what, five weeks since the last show? Four or five weeks since the last show. And we're going to call it uh, Season 4, Episode 1. There it is. So here we are into Season 4 of the Sportscasters. And after three things. We are going to speak with the great Lee Jenkins, the man who has appeared on this podcast more than anyone. He's going to join us because we weren't going to really do any football this week because next week is already going to be our annual kind of mega Super Bowl show where we try to get one interview from someone on each side of the ball, so to speak. And then we get an interview with someone with a national perspective, and then we usually do a football media segment with Deitch. Right. So it's usually a three or four banger show. So we figured we got all that going down. The plan was kind of to do baseball and hockey. But as Sunday was playing out and the Broncos made it to the Super Bowl, I remember thinking, oh, Peyton Manning's going to the Super Bowl the year that he won Sportsman of the Year. And then I remember thinking at some point that day, oh, yeah, Jenkins wrote the Sportsman of the Year column. On Manning, and then when everything went down with Sherman, and we played that off the top, a kind of a joke version of it, I had remembered that that in the summer, Jenkins had done a piece on the co- on the cover of SI on Sherman. So I thought, who better to kind of get in to talk a little bit about the game? And I I would think by next week we're going to be pretty tired out of the Sherman thing, yeah, and yeah. we'll probably be on to something else. So. We're going to do that, so we'll have Lee in, and maybe we'll get a little bit of basketball in real quick just to see what's going on with his kind of beat, as you might put it. 
see how he's doing. So we're going to check in with Lee Jenkins. On a season premiere, I guess it's fitting to have the most appeared person in the history of the show on. After that, we're going to kind of, we were saying, Opie and Anthony, the radio show, they say they do this a lot. They kind of toss the ball around. We're going to kind of do that with things that we would love to talk about that we missed while we were gone. So a bunch of different things. 10, 15 minutes, we're going to go back and forth on some stuff that happened, like the Saints season ending, my brother playing at Madison Square Garden, things we know you'd like to get our opinions on. If you're a fan of this show, you probably are curious what we thought about these things that happened over breaks, so we'll get to that. The BCS Championship game is another example. The Major League Hall, Hall of Fame baseball vote. Then we're going to have a new hockey guest. Al Halford writes for the... Uh, What's the uh, NBC Sports thing, Pro Football Weekly? Is that the one that the lawyer does? Hmm. You know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of them that start with Pro Football. I think it's Pro Football Weekly, I want to say. NBC bought that up, and there's a lawyer dude who I can't think of his name right now. Who always He, he always is on at the end of Football Night in America. Pro Football Talk? Pro Football Talk, right. What's Who's that dude? Uh, Eric Crisilius? Nah, 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 nah. There's a main man over there. Mm. Whatever. The hockey main man, because now they have pretty much every sport, is going to be on. His name is Al Halford, and we'll talk about a bunch of different hockey stuff with him, and then we'll close the show off with one last thing. So we're glad to be back. It's been a while. If you forgot, I'm Steve Bennett. Don Russ is the other host. We're glad to be here. we got a lot going on in the next couple months, but before we can get to any of that, we got to start today's show with three things. Let's play a game, all right? Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. I think the guy you're looking for might have been a... Like Florio? Yeah, 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 Florio, that's it. All right, there we go. Mystery solved. Yeah, so first thing today, Don and I are going to kind of share this one. Just talk a little bit about, obviously, the games last week. The NFL is down to two. I remember going into Saturday, or into Sunday, mentioning to Miss Caster, geez, there's only three football games left. Right. And now there's only one. And I think probably going into Sunday, I would have ranked the four possible outcomes in terms of what I would want for a Super Bowl as now just being a casual fan observer of it, this would probably be the one I would want the most. The two one seeds, the two teams that have been the best all year, and the number one offense versus the number one defense. Yeah, I think I think if you could have said from the beginning of the season what would be the marquee matchup if you throw your own team out of it, this, right. this might have been it. This could have very easily been it. And I think you got... If you're not a Manning hater, and I know they're out there for whatever reason, I think he's relatively likable. If you're not a Manning hater, you probably like Manning quite a bit. And I would think that it's a pretty good good and evil type of story too, especially with the way things played out for the Seahawks. Now, I was on the Seahawks being the villains of the league weeks ago. Right. I know we talked about it when we had the guy from the AP in Seattle on. And I said a lot of people are going to maybe look at this as me having sour grapes because they had just embarrassed the Saints on Monday Night Football. 
But I said I really believe that this is a team that is really hard to like if you're not a fan of that team specifically. I don't think there's many casual Seahawks fans unless you're the kind of WWF fan <laughs> who roots for the bad guys. Because yeah, you know? yeah. I think that they play that role perfectly. And I don't, I don't really think there's anything wrong with that. I think that they kind of embrace it. But I don't think there's anything likable about Pete Carroll. There's certainly nothing likable about Sherman and Thomas on defense. And I've always said the one kind of exception to that rule is Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson who is very, very likable. Marshawn, Marshawn Lynch. Lynch, nothing likable about him. No, especially you're not around here. So I think that it's a real kind of good and evil type of Super Bowl, but we'll have all kinds of time to talk about that next week. Looking back a couple days ago now at the games, I thought the AFC game was a dud. Yep. I don't think New England was ever seriously in that game at all. No, it was a weird one, though. They, I mean, they hung around long enough to not be out of it points-wise. Right. I thought, they could have made that two to make it an eight-point game, but, yeah, it wasn't that it good It just a game. felt like Denver was going to do enough to win, and Denver could have blown them out if they would have scored touchdowns. Right. The New England defense did a great job of keeping the team in the game by holding to field goals as many times as they did, but Denver, I'm pretty sure, only punted on the very first three and out. <laughs> really? I think they. I know they yeah, scored on right. the next five drives, and maybe it ended up being the last six, but that just felt like a real easy game, relatively speaking, for a championship game. And Brady was especially bad in it, I thought. He missed a deep throw that could have been a touchdown on the first drive after the first field goal by Denver, so it was actually their second drive. And then... When Denver had pulled ahead a bit, he missed a long pass down. Oh, right before half. They could have got some points, and he missed a long pass down the sidelines, and then they ended up running the ball so that they could avoid the uh, always always regularly happening free kick after a fair catch oh. thing. That's why they ran it there at the very end of the half. Right. Which, I guess, in Denver, that's more likely to try that. But, yeah, that game I thought was a dud, and then I thought the NFC Championship game was everything you wanted it to be. You could make a very, very good case that those are the two best teams in the NFC. You could make a good case that San Francisco is playing the best football of anyone in the league going into Championship Week. And I think it comes down to their quarterback made one, if not two, too many mistakes in the uh, in the fourth quarter there. The first one was terrible. That a really bad pick. Yeah, and the second one, I mean, Sherman makes Strip a nice fumble. play on. Well, the, oh, right. Because right. there's three turnovers, so it was a pick, a sack fumble, and then a pick. He also made an absolutely amazing throw on the touchdown to Bolden. Uh, yes. Like jumping in the air, and he throws a bullet. He's talented. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a freak athlete, but yeah, made a couple bad decisions at the end of that cost him. Well, I think that the Seahawks, who have not played their best football maybe since that Saints Monday night game, got... The mistake that the Saints couldn't make the week before on the Ingram touchdown, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. And then they got the mistakes that the Niners couldn't make. And in credit to them, they made a great play on offense on 4th and 7. On the free play, it was a great job by Wilson to recognize he had a free play and taking the shot into the end zone. It was 4th and 7, so they wouldn't have had a first down because of the offsides, but they would have gotten another chance 4th and 2 there. Uh, so a great play there on offense, and then Sherman made the great great play on defense. I think what's lost in all the kind of hoopla of how he reacted after right. was that was a pretty money friggin' play to win an NFC championship. I mean, that's a nice play because that's going to be caught for a touchdown if he doesn't get up and make that catch. I right. Think. Yeah, it's a little underthrown maybe. A little but... underthrown, but I think he's going to catch it if, oh, yeah, yeah. if it's, it's not def- tipped it's away. It's definitely catchable, yeah. sure. Um, 
Yeah, you got anything else on that? On NFL? Not on that. A couple other like small football things. Just I'm curious, did any of the coaching changes surprise you at all? Were you particularly surprised that anyone got fired or uh, maybe surprised? the Browns guy, I guess, yeah, is kind of the one that stands weird. out after one year. I mean, you're a bad team. I don't know what they expected out of him. So that one's strange. Uh, did they get a new GM or something there? I can't remember. No, why. it's Lombardi there. Yeah, why? I don't know why they did that. The other interesting thing, football-wise, I wanted to ask you about, obviously, we don't care about the Pro Bowl. Nobody does. No. Just wondering if you're interested at all in the, the drafting draft? aspect of it. I'm more likely to watch the draft if that's televised than I am to watch the Pro Bowl. I'm sure they're televising that draft. Yeah, I imagine they will, too. They stole that from the NHL. I'm sure right. they won't say that. But the NHL, that was actually kind of a cool thing they did, and it's fun. And I've always said I like the NHL All-Star game as much as it's not hockey. And like, I think the I, NHL I guys it. have the right temperament from that. I can't imagine the football player's pick last is going to take that well. No, maybe not. And I don't know. I wonder if they're going to do – how do they do it in the NHL? You had to draft goalies – Right, uh, a certain round. Uh-huh. Are they even going to bother drafting offensive and defensive linemen and everything like that? Because there's a lot bigger team you got to draft in in the Pro Bowl than in hockey. Yeah, so it's Jerry Rice and Deion Sanders are picking the teams respectively, I believe. Okay, so so I imagine receivers go first. Yeah, well, that's about it. We're going to talk some football with Lee Jenkins, and then obviously next week we have the huge uh, Super Bowl show. Uh, real quick, last thing about football. Uh, I heard a stat that said. That was the first time we we're talking about kind of how good the talent was there at the end of the season. It was the first time the last four teams all had 12 wins since like 1998 when Denver won the Super Bowl. Yeah, really impressed. It was a great playoffs overall, I thought, from the wild card round right on. Remember that first Saturday of games was great. The Saints game was a walk-off field goal at night. Right. And the earlier game was... Uh, yeah, I thought the games were either really good or like total clunkers. Like, like the, the Bengals game hold form as always and was shit the, the Bengals and Chargers game New England Indy was a lousy game uh but the game what was the other game that day I can't remember but I thought it was pretty good but some of them were really good a lot of them came right right down to the last drive or last mistake or yeah hey, good playoffs like overall for sure all right uh my second thing this week the Notre Dame football fighting Irish uh signed a deal with Under Armour for big money, I don't have it in front of me. Ninety here. million, ninety ten million dollars, ten years. I do have it in front of me somewhere. Here we go. Um, Forbes does a good job of breaking down like some bullet points on the deal. Uh, Adidas and Nike also bid on the contract, so they were outbid by Under Armour. Uh, the Notre Dame is the option to take some of the cash in stock. Yeah, Notre Dame is this is kind of an FYI the second biggest second most valuable football team in the country you know what the number one is Texas it is Texas yep uh, which Who is surprising I think to me I guess would be in the top 20 in the NFL as well I think really I heard. yeah wow um, Under Armour now is outfit outfitting deals with 13 D1 teams Auburn Maryland Northwestern but obviously none of them as big as this one and they said that Under Armour is nowhere near as big as Nike uh, Nike has pro- or not profits, but revenue twenty six point three billion. Adidas nineteen point seven billion. Under Armour is at around two billion. Wow! But uh, they said its growth in recent years has been dramatic. So it's interesting. I asked you off the air if any team lives on tradition more than Notre Dame because they've been largely a lousy team for most of definitely all of my adult life. Yeah, other, it just other than doesn't matter year. for them. No, I mean they get TV deals. Uh, now Under Armour deals, and 
I'm sure their merchandise sells better than anybody's, maybe other than Texas too. So. They're just an institution, and I guess literally they are. And I, their football program is just—it's never going anywhere. No. So, but like we said, uh, when they suspended their quarterback, kind of on their own. I mean, they do it the right way. Last too, so. I heard, he's still trying to come back. I think he's hoping to be there next year. I'm sure the so. fans hope he's there too. Yeah. All right, my second thing, a hockey thing, and we'll talk more about this with Al Halford from uh, Pro Hockey Talk, but I don't know if you noticed this the other night. Hockey Day in Canada was Saturday. I did not. Right? So what that means is there's seven Canadian teams now, so they can't all play against each other. I think it was the Senators who played the Rangers. Okay. But then the other three games that day, which were broadcast on CBC nationally, uh, were the two Canadian teams against two Canadian teams against each other. So I think it was Montreal and Toronto played. And then um, Winnipeg played Edmonton. And Vancouver and Calgary was the nightcap. And two seconds into the game, there was seven players ejected <laughs> for a huge line brawl that started. It seemed like because the Flames wanted to start it. Uh, former Sabre Chris Butler was one of the ejected players. This uh, is amazing. Do you ever have a fight here? I can't recall, but uh, he was definitely in the mix of it. And it ended with Canucks head coach John Tortorella in between the first and second period trying to get at the personnel that run the Flames. And that got on tape and went viral and meant that Colin Campbell, who is the Shanahan of coaches and administrators for the league. Okay. Shanahan just suspends players. Campbell used to be the Shanahan. Of used the league, to, right? yeah. Now he just does coaches and GMs and. Okay. Must owners. be a slow job for the most part. He, he does other things too, but right. I, just the discipline, that's what he handles. Anyway, he suspended Tortorella for 15 days, six games without pay and no contact to the team. I wonder how they enforce that. We we talked about that with, yeah, the, with Peyton. Uh, Peyton. Yeah, I wonder how they really enforce that. Really but. bizarre, but uh, interesting. So basically what happens is the Flames decide to pick a fight with the Canucks to the level that basically everyone they have on the ice is ejected. And <laughs> the guy who ends up with the biggest suspension in all of it is the head coach of the Canucks. Yeah, I, I mean... There's a lot of talk. Anytime something like this happens, the NHL is always in the news for the wrong reasons. It always gets brought up. Like, does fighting need to be taken out of hockey? And this type of fighting is stupid. Like, line brawls, I mean, they're stupid to begin with, generally. But if they have a purpose, that's that's one thing. If it's an emotional reaction to something that happens right. in the game, it's more tolerable. Sure. If it's just this kind of premeditated garbage, it just doesn't seem like it has any place really in the game. Right. And that said, that said though, fighting is still allowed in hockey. So I think maybe Tortorella got off light. I mean, I don't know the extent to which he was threatening people or anything like that, but he kind of took it outside the game a little bit. Like, it's one thing for coaches to yell at each other between the benches it's all a lot of show for their players and and i think the league doesn't look at fights necessarily as embarrassing to the league because they are a part of the game right if they did i guess they would take them out right but i think they certainly feel that a coach kind of storming a locker room and causing a big scene is an embarrassment to the league 
So I think right. That's... And people that are anti-fighting probably think that fighting is also right. But and the this league is just an extension of it. The league doesn't. And I, I would argue maybe that the league is placating casual fans by keeping fighting in it because we've already seen a couple incidents incidences this year. I could certainly do without it. It wouldn't matter to yeah, me. I don't one need bit it either. The only thing I would gone. I I think the worst argument of all time is that dirty play would stop. Because and it's not because I wouldn't even compare it to hockey. I would compare it to something like football. Like I mean, what's the difference? Uh there's not fights breaking out in football all the time. There's not fights breaking out in basketball. Uh similar games, maybe not as physical in basketball, but you don't see fights breaking out. I mean the NHL does have rules against fighting, I guess, if you call the five-minute penalty a rule against fighting. But I don't know because, I, like I said, it's more tolerable if it's an emotional reaction. But nowadays it seems like if you throw a good hit, you better be ready to fight. Right. Even yep. a clean hit, so, yep. which is stupid to me. Oh, right. the top picks in the Pro Bowl have been announced. Ooh. Wait, so they're not... So you ought to try to guess. Are they doing it live then? What's been done is each guy was allowed to pick a... Center. (laughs) A, uh, let's see. Uh, NFL great Jerry Rice is already bucking conventional fantasy football wisdom in the new... Okay, I don't want to give that away just yet because I want you to try to guess it. Okay. Okay. There was a coin toss that Rice won. Okay. Okay. Uh, Rice called tails. Okay, got it. They each picked two players, it looks like. So they're the captains, basically. So do you want to try to guess who Rice's two captains are? He's got a quarterback and a defensive end, and Sanders has a running back and a defensive end. Um, is... Brady's not going to play, I heard. Is Breeze going to play? Yep. So I'll say Breeze is one of the quarterbacks? Yep. Breeze is the quarterback on Rice's team. Is Peterson going to play? I don't. No, he's not. Hmm. How about LaShawn McCoy is one of the running backs? He, I'm not sure if he's playing, but he's not the running back. Huh. It's the other guy. (laughs) It's the one you're not naming. Oh, Jamal Charles. Right. He probably actually deserves it the most, too. Right. And then two defensive ends. Two defensive ends. One guy who had an unbelievable year statistically for the one of the worst teams in the league was the defensive player of the year last year. Oh, uh, J.J. Watt. Yep, that's he's with Charles. And then the other guy is Robert Quinn, which you probably wouldn't have got. From no, Silas, no. So. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, I, I guess. So they picked captains. I'm assuming the rest of it is going to be uh, televised. It says that Rice and Sanders plan to pick 11 players each on Tuesday among offensive and defensive linemen, punters, fullbacks, and special teams. So it looks like they're going to do that just kind of on the side, split up the linemen and the fullbacks and the punters and I all see. that. Yeah, And then that the rest sense. is going to be Wednesday during a draft air live on the NFL Network. That would be cool. Yep. Like I said, I'll probably – Watch some of that and none of the actual Pro Bowl. So right, the NFL's got that. Um, my last thing, or was that your thing? You're up. Okay, <laughs> there is a billion dollar bracket being offered by the Quicken Loans Incorporated and Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. I'm probably winning this company. Yep. Uh, so everyone, get out there, fill out your bracket. I believe it's one per household. Yep. And your odds of winning are one in nine point quintillion. Which is a lot. Depending on sources, we looked it up. 
It says in the U.S. it's like one with 15 zeros. Yeah, 18 F- or 30 in the England. Yeah, Whatever which doesn't make means, sense. Right. So maybe, It's a lot. It's yeah. really tough odds here. Yeah, you're not going to win it. And I mean, it's kind of brilliant, I guess, on their part. They're going to drive... Who's a, not going to fill one out? A ton of traffic to their right. website, or this website, so they could sell advertising. And uh, the odds of them losing this are pretty terrible. And I'm sure it's insured. I'm sure it's they insured to as much as they can and you can either take it in what was it 40 years 40 at years at 25 mil or 500 mil at once 500 million lump sum so fill it out you might as well uh have your dog pick the game something i mean those odds are terrible so uh it's kind of a brilliant move on their part too. yeah i can't see not doing it every year i guess right if they're gonna no, do why this not? every year maybe till someone wins which could be infinity right why not? I heard a stat that said the other day that the odds of two people ever shuffling the deck of uh, playing cards the same way, like a standard deck of playing cards, is like infinitesimally small. They said something, someone gave an example, I think I saw on Reddit, that said something like, if there were a thousand planets in the solar system, or a thousand suns, and each sun had a thousand planets, and on that planet was a thousand people shuffling a thousand decks simultaneously they said and this has been going on since the beginning of the universe just now would we be starting to hit duplicate shuffles there's just that many different combinations so yeah that really has nothing to do with this other than things with (laughs) infinitesimally small odds all right my last thing today is an equally silly sort of college basketball story florida state has a junior college recruit that may never see Florida State because he was arrested for allegedly eating marijuana in order to conceal it Uh. from police. Uh, His name is Simeon Bowers. He committed in September. And it was him and two of his boys from Chipola, not not Chipotle, but Chipola College in Florida, Juco. And they were arrested Thursday night on a traffic stop. Police came up, spelled marijuana coming from the car, which was pulled over because of speeding. And uh, Bowers and his two teammates uh, ate the marijuana to conceal it, and uh, they're busted. Uh, Florida State has said that they want to wait to get all of the complete information before they make a decision on Bowers, who is considered to be one of the top junior college prospects in the country. Hmm. And uh, Graham, another guy busted, has been on visits to Missouri, UNLV, Kentucky, Cincinnati, and Alabama. So hopefully these kids, you know, ruin their futures for a Thursday night bowl. (laughs) Yeah, stay in your house. What are you doing? Yeah. So, and Josh Gordon, who had that big season, he, when he was in college, he got busted for falling asleep at Taco Bell. (laughs) And they woke him up and he had pot with him. Oh, so so stupid. He's so talented, too. Super talented. All right, we're going to take a break and... Come back with our main man, Lee Jenkins. Our next guest is from San Diego, California, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. Since 2007, he's been a writer for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. Today, he's a senior writer there. He covers basketball, football, and even some baseball. And believe it or not, today he's making his 15th appearance on the podcast. Certainly 
one of the nicest, if not the nicest guys we've encountered since we've been doing this. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the great Lee Jenkins. What's going on, Lee? Hey, Steve. How are you? Really good. Uh, really excited to be on. So I was, t- I was telling Don this and telling everyone earlier. So I'm watching the game on s- the games on Sunday, like you know, pretty much everyone. And uh, <laughs> it, what was this? Like 60 million people watched the uh, the second game, which is crazy to me. But so I'm watching the games and the 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 Broncos win the first one. And one of the first thoughts I had was like, oh, wow, you know, a lot of people were crushing SI for giving Manning the uh, the Sportsman of the Year, you know, and here he is making the Super Bowl, you know, good for good for them. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, Lee wrote that cover story, and you did. And then I'm watching the game later, and the whole fiasco with, uh, with Sherman goes down, and I'm thinking about Sherman, and I'm like, let me see. I know he's from. I'm thinking about everything. I'm no. I know about him. Like, why do I know so much? Like, oh yeah, because Jenkins wrote a cover story on this guy too back in the summer. So basically, man, you're watching the games the same way I am. Yeah, it's funny because you don't really like. You don't necessarily like root for guys after you write about them, but you definitely have a little more of an interest in them. And with Manning, because you're right, as I took some hits um, for that sportsman choice, I've kind of. You know, so I'm from San Diego, so, you know, I wanted the San Diego team to win. But after they didn't, I was, you know, I'd like to see them win just to validate my right. editor's decision, you yeah. know? Yeah, and, and let me ask you this real quick. Just get your opinion on it. And I was pretty much okay for the most part with Manning <laughs> being the choice. I don't know why people were so far. Like, come on, Peyton Manning? I mean, couldn't isn't he one of those guys who could almost win this every year? But, yeah, I didn't do it that controversial either. Yeah, I didn't get it. The one thing I thought maybe SI opened themselves up to a little bit of criticism for, and I'm just curious what your opinion is. I asked Deitch about this, and I'll tell you what he said after, is I wonder if, I guess maybe the guy who made the most sense, if you weren't picking Manning, might have been Rivera. I, I mean, that would uh, maybe be the guy I thought. And I, the one thing that went through my mind is, I wonder if SI and Verducci had started you know, a baseball website this year, if they would have went with Rivera, if I wonder if at all the idea of being able to put the Monday morning quarterback logo and to, and to promote Monday morning quarterback maybe was in there at some point. That was the one criticism I thought maybe you could make. And I almost didn't hear it That's at all. Funny. You know what I mean? I mean, I would have gone, I think I would have gone Ortiz over Rivera just because that's fair. Right, something. and Boston you know, strong. R- Rivera was leaving. Right. Uh, you know, he was retiring. I, I don't know that that's an accomplishment. I mean, he had a good season, um, but they didn't win anything. And then, look, you can make the same argument for the Broncos. They didn't win any either. Right. But he, or haven't yet, but he was having an exceptional individual season. Rivera was having a good season. I don't know. Fortunately, I'm not the one who has to make that call. Right. I probably would have gone LeBron again. LeBron <laughs> again, yeah. But... <laughs> Yeah, back to the uh, the other the original thing. It's just like you're talking about. You don't. Root for, I mean, for us doing this so often now, watching sports, like every time Jeremy Lin comes up, I just think about like talking to Pablo Torre about it. Pablo, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's just guys now that are linked to us with with people we talk to on the show, and it's not necessarily that I link you with Manning and Sherman. But it's just as everything was playing out, and I was thinking about the two things. I just thought of you right away, and I was like, "We got to get him on." This they're, week. they're like the two most different human beings you could ever have, right? right. I mean, one's from Compton, 
the other, you know, had this life. You know, one's literally from Compton, son of a of a trash truck driver um, who was in a gang, the classic L.A. gangster. Um, the other, son of a quarterback, you know, raised and do, uh, you know, incredible wealth and southern gentility. Um, you know, one with Manning kind of really hides from the or insulates himself from the public spotlight, um, really shies away from it in every way. Um, the other kind of seeks out those lights as much as he can. Uh, one offense, one defense. It presents just a, a really wonderful contrast uh, for the Super Bowl, I, I would say. And then as, as, as a writer, you know what, though, what's interesting about them is they're two of my favorite subjects, even though they're completely different. Um, they're both great. When you get the tape running and you can get them focused, um, sitting in a room with you, they're they're both great to talk to. They're both incredible storytellers. That's probably the only thing they have in common. Well, take me into your living room a little bit, you know, at the end of that game, and tell me what's going through your head as you see this Sherman, I don't know what you call it. I don't want to call it a controversy. I don't think it's that, but this whole thing play yeah, out. What are you thinking at that point, watching this as someone you know, who's profiling? I, 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 I put this a couple times today, but like, I, I, when I was talking to him, when I was interviewing him, I, at one point, since with a guy like that, you just want to know what it sounds like, what it looks like to be across the line of scrimmage from him. You know, and that's a hard thing to describe um, unless you're just talking to a bunch of receivers. And I did the story in the off season when it was hard to talk to that many other players. I did talk to Larry Fitzgerald. Um, but he didn't give me a whole lot on that. So I said on one to Sherman, I said, treat me like I'm Roddy White. You know, what, what would you be saying right now? What would I be, you know, what would I be hearing? What would you be doing? And it was kind of a contrived little scene. And we were, in, we were actually in his living room. He kind of came up on me and he said, you know, he started talking junk and he's like, try to run a route on me. And, you know, he kind of knocked me back. And it was, it was, but it was more funny. And I felt like when, when I saw that on Sunday, I thought, okay, aha, that's what it looks like. <laughs> that's what it would be to be Roddy White. And he was, he was basically giving America what he gives a receiver on Sunday. And you know what, Steve, I think that we love, you know, there's been this explosion in popularity, right, in regard to football. And so many people, so many kind of what I consider casual sports fans, they love the NFL, and they're really into it. And this is one of those instances where I think they got, they really got to see what their sport they love really looks like and really is. And maybe they were turned off because they got a little bit too close. Um, and that's kind of what I thought. That's how I felt. That's what I thought was happening. I was like, wow, we're really seeing it right now. I mean, this isn't media training. This is not, you know, out of behind a podium in a suit and tie picked out by a stylist with words picked by a publicist. This is really Richard Sherman on game day. So I got a kick out of it, um, but I sort of knew right away that a lot of people, again, who are those casual fans, that they would not. You know, I always talk about this kind of paradox that we've created for our athletes that I hate in that we get so annoyed with the kind of canned responses we get. Right. And then we turn on them when they give us something candid. And I thought that was another thing I thought of. Yeah, and this guy's a a weird guy to get a grip on because a lot of it's act. Okay, it's hard to know where the act starts and where it stops. And I think... Yeah, it's it's all kind of intermingled. However, that wasn't act. I mean, what he gave Fox was 
legitimately what he's like in a game because, and look, keep in mind, he's the most affable guy. I mean, he's, he's really well-educated. Um, he's fun to be around. But there's no doubt that in games he uses his own voice to rile himself up. And we've seen athletes do this. Deion Sanders did it. Gary Payton did it. You know, we see people do this. Um, and he's one of them. Since he was a little boy, his brother would say to him, this guy thinks you're no good. He says he's going to get three touchdowns on you. Sherman would say, he did? He does? <laughs> and the brother would be lying to him the whole time. But he would know that was a way to rile Sherman up and get the best you get his best effort. And he's, and every coach he's had has said, if you try to muzzle him, you won't get his best performance. You won't get, you know, all of Sherman. So Pete Carroll's a great coach. He's also a coach who doesn't stymie individual expression. He has allowed Sherman to be Sherman, and he's reaped the benefits, probably the best corner in the NFL. Um, but there's also a fine line there, and sometimes Sherman walks over it and annoys some people, irritates some people, and that's clearly what he did. You know, you mentioned how part of it is maybe shtick a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit of an act. And uh, the first time that the Seahawks beat the Saints this year in December, that week we talked to Tim Booth. I don't know if you know Tim, but he covers pretty much everything going on in Seattle there for the AP. And I mentioned to him that I thought maybe more than any other team in recent memory, the Seahawks can very easily be compared to the bad guys in the WWF. That they really can fit that mold really well. And I almost feel like they kind of are conscious of it and embrace it to some level. I think if you're not in Seattle, it's they'd be a really hard team to like unless you're the kind of guy who really likes the bad guy in the WWF. You know, and I think he agreed to me in, in a large point, and I wonder what you think about that point as them being kind of the only guy who kind of doesn't fit that at all is Russell Wilson, who I think is super likable. But other than that, from Pete Carroll down to Earl Thomas and Richard Sherman and many of the Marshawn Lynch, who's a huge villain in Buffalo, where we're from, was a disaster here. Everyone here hates him. Uh, they really are the bad guys that I think if you're on their side, you love it. And if not, you probably hate them. Yeah, I mean, there's a little of that, yeah, wrestling sort of, you know, primping and posing and, you know, but that goes wrong, I think, around the whole league. I mean, as somebody who's talked to a lot of those guys, I mean, I don't really see them that way. I, I see them more as, you know, especially their secondary, you know, guys who might have been doubted. Cam Chancellor was too big. Earl Thomas was too small. Sherman was a fifth-round pick. Brandon Browner, before he got kicked out of the league, he was in the right. CFL. Um, you know, so they were guys who had problems, who had issues, and were not necessarily pedigreed. Um, but the bad guys, too, I mean, they play so physically. I mean, they really beat you up. And um, it's, a, it's an abusive, punishing style defense that they play. So maybe that goes hand-in-hand hand with this. But those other guys aren't like Sherman. I mean, they're actually a pretty soft-spoken, I mean, away from the field, soft-spoken group. Um, it, it, Sherman's different, and he, you know, he's like this. He's kind of re- he's really outgoing. He's really fun, um, really talkative, no matter where he is on the field or off. And yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of what you're. I'm trying to think of what you're saying. I, I, I don't really see them that way. Um, I also think it, it's funny that you said what you said about that we don't like the canned responses. We always complain right. about that. Yeah. They always complain if something gets too real. I mean, Russell Wilson is as polished yep. and, for lack of a better word, canned as you can get. Um, you know, so Sherman is the opposite. And it's funny that you're right, Russell Wilson will be held up as sort of a, 
um, you know, a symbol of everything we like in a quarterback in the next two weeks, and, and, and Sherman will play the bad guy. Um, but I'm just a sports writer, but if, you, if I had to pick between one or the two to, um, to sit with and talk with for 20 minutes, it, would, it wouldn't even be close. You know, we mentioned uh, the Monday morning quarterback uh, project that I know we've we've had pretty much everyone involved in it on the show this year, and Sherman's a big part of that as kind of the voice of the players. Have you had a chance to read a lot of what he's done this year for SI, and what has kind of been your thoughts on him as uh, kind of sneaking into your side of the world a little bit? You know, I've read some of it, and, you know, I think it's, look, I think it's great when, athletes are trying to connect with their public and some of Richard's efforts have been clumsy um, he had his biggest platform the other day on Sunday and I thought he bungled it and it's a shame because he has a lot to offer and most people you know folks in middle America who are watching that game they don't watch the Seahawks every week they look at him and they just say oh you know there's some Guys posing and showboating. He's a braggart. He's a jerk. He's a renegade. Um, people throw around that term. I hate to even use it, but thug. I mean, it's, you know, it's a pretty offensive word. Um, but people look at him and think that, and it's his own fault because he's the one who would allow that. He's the one who presented himself that way, and the delivery is that way. Um, but it's a shame, to be honest, because there is a deeper message that he's carrying around. And the, the message really goes back to who he was when he was growing up. But, I mean, this is a guy who, see, nobody had ever gone, no athlete had ever gone from Compton Dominguez to Stanford. Okay, he was the first one. He turned down a scholarship to USC. Carroll wanted him to play corner. He turned it down, even though they were in the height of their heyday. And turning down SC at that time for a kid from South Central L.A. was crazy. He turned it down to go play for Stanford, who's coming off a 1-11 season. Right. Okay, and he did that because he wanted to show that you can be a football star and also be, you know, a person of substance and intellect. Okay, he did it as a way to kind of buck the stereotype and show his community that they could buck stereotypes, too. And then now, you know, people are just talking about him as a guy who's really deepening stereotypes. And that, to me, is sort of the, the sad part of it all. Yeah, you know, one other interesting perspective I had on this, which I'll share with you and get your opinion on, is my brother uh, plays Division One hockey at Yale, and they were lucky enough to, to win the whole thing last year. And I was talking to Anthony about it the other day and said, what did you think of Sherman and the way he reacted to winning and how you seen the leaders of your team last year react and how would that fly? And he's like, it's totally a different world. He's like, but that attitude would not fly here for a second. He's like that. We that's just everything against the way I've been taught to win. But you know what? See, I mean, it's so cultural, and it, it's you know the way the game is played, the way sports are approached in American inner cities. Um, you know, in places like South LA, it, it's it's just going to be different than a hockey team in a New England suburb, or you know, wherever those guys come from, or some New England boarding school. It's just a different culture, and, you know, the culture where Sherman is from is more verbal. Um, it can be, at times, a little more confrontational. I mean, he was born into the cradle of hip-hop, really, right. and yeah. he, he came across a lot of those people. You know, Nate Dogg and Warren G. and Dre sponsored his youth football team, and he swam in his pool, 
And so there's some of that verbal jousting just goes on. Um, it's just it's just part of it. And you know, I know that I, it kind of rubs people and, and white you know white middle America the wrong way. Um, but it's just a reality, and it's not you know a lot of times it's, I don't think it's offensive. It's just it's, it's just a different way. And you know, I, he carries a little bit of that over into the football field. Like even before games and in the locker room, he has these rap battles. He wins every one. Um, you can imagine what a great, you know, freestyler right. Richard Sherman would be. And so he's taking some of that onto the field. And again, some of that slipped over into that post-game interview. And I think for a lot of people, it was like, oh, my God. It's like coming into my living room, and this isn't what I want to see out of football players. And look, I cover the NBA. So, you know, I know, and the NBA's audience isn't as broad, okay? You don't have so many casual fans, but I hear it all the time. I hear these kind of coded terms that people give for NBA players and tattoos, the way they talk or whatever, and I, I saw a little, so I'm starting to feel a little of that with Sherman that's going on, and it's just a different culture. It's hard to judge, you know? It's hard to judge. Yeah, and like we started this conversation with just the cultural differences between a winner like Sherman and a winner like Manning. You know, almost ex- exactly like what we were saying. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So Peyton Manning wouldn't do that, and I'm sure he's, you know, turned off by it. But, uh, you know, he, yeah, exactly. He came from a different place and was, you know, raised a different way. And, I, I, I look, I know Rich Sherman's parents, and I've sat with them, and they're they are outstanding people. They're much different than the Mannings, who I know also. Um, but they're wonderful people, and they... You know, Richard Dow is a gang member who essentially devoted his life um, to, to picking up trash in the city of L.A., but also to insulating his kid, insulating his youngest son from all of the temptations and all the problems that befell him. And so he built a house that, you know, was a shelter that was the biggest house in the watch um, for him and his friends to stay at, and they were on him at school, and they, you know, they, they gave him incentives to get good grades, and he did. He was a kickoff valedictorian. I mean, he was nearly valedictorian in his high school, and that's a massive high school. So, wow. um, you know, there's, 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 a, there's a duality, I guess. You know, one last thing about this, Lee, is that we're going to spend, everyone's going to spend so much time talking about Sherman and what he means to the Seahawks, and then I think about Manning and the way he plays and the way that team's set up, and I think it's going to be really hard for Sherman to make an impact on this game the way he did in the NFC Championship game because I'm going to be really surprised if Peyton Manning, the way he approaches the game, doesn't kind of just let Richard Sherman take away the guy he wants to take away and then try to work that defense somewhere else. He's got three receivers that almost are interchangeable from week to week in terms of attacking defense. He's got a great tight end, and then he's got running backs. I don't know about you and how much you thought about this yet, but I just think it's going to be really hard for Sherman to have this kind of impact in the Super Bowl. Well, I mean, that's having an impact. I mean, if Manning's right, really right. going to, and I, and I think you might be right, but if Manning's really going to, you know, not throw to Damaris Thomas right. um, for fear of Sherman, I mean, that's, that's an amazing testament to, to Sherman. Now, I think it's an interesting matchup because you have, you know, Sherman told me, and I don't know enough about the NFL knows it's true or not, but most corners play, you know, maybe five snaps a game in true press coverage, you know, truly getting up on a guy and jamming him at the line. And see how in the Seahawks, you had about 50 snaps a game. 
um, which is amazing if that's true, uh, that big of a differential. Um, but if it is true, and we know that they're an incredibly physical defense, I mean, Tom, Damaris Thomas, I stood next to him last month, and he is massive. I mean, he looks like a tight end. I thought it was, you know, the other guy's named Thomas, right. too. Yep. Julius Thomas. I thought it was the tight end when I, when I went huh. up to him. Um, so Sherman on Damaris Thomas, two guys who are so physical, I just think that'll be an interesting wrestling match. And, you know, that's a guy who, you know, Sherman goes up against big receivers, Calvin Johnson, but Damaris Thomas is really thick and really strong. And, you know, he, he might be able to get over on Sherman a couple times. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I, I was thinking, you know, both times the Saints played them, I know Sherman basically took Colston out of the game. And I'm trying to think, I know Breeze took a couple shots that didn't work in the first game that way. Colson couldn't get any separation. I know specifically two plays. Sherman just batted away pretty much. But, yeah. You're right on Manning. He's not going to get drawn into nope. some nonsense. I mean, if he has to dink and dunk the whole way, he'll be happy to do it. I mean, he just, he, that's what he's shown this year, the last couple of years. It's just, um, you know, he's just willing. I, I find amazing about him, honestly. I think most athletes, or a lot of athletes, as they get older, the mind still tells them that they can do it even when the body doesn't, even when they should know better, when the body's obviously letting them down. Somebody told me with Manning, it was, it was a quarterback coach, Greg Knapp, he said when Manning, he understands. He knows his capabilities so well. He didn't feel that. You know, in his head, his mind isn't telling him, yeah, I can still fit this 35-yard you know, post pattern between two DBs. He knows he can. And so he is checking down and he's taking the easy throws and he's done it all the way to the most prolific season ever. If he cashes this in, do you think he thinks at all about walking away, going out Elway style? I mean, there's really nothing else he can do. I mean, there's obviously career goals long, like statistically that he could probably still achieve a couple of records that Favre has. But in terms of a single season, if he cashes this in, he can't have a better one. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. And I mean, I do think that he is, I do think he's at peace. I mean, I think he would be at peace without the game. And, you know, talking to him for that story, um, I don't feel like he yearns um, necessarily to keep playing. Because um, he's going to kill it on no TV reason. after. Right? I mean, but there's no reason. I don't think he's going to want to do that. No, you don't, I, think, I don't so? think he'll do that. No. No. I kind of see him, honestly, but I think he'll want to be around the game. I mean, I, I see him as almost in an Elway type role. Okay. You know, I could see him being the president of a team or, um, you know, a role like that. I, I don't think he'll coach, and I don't really think he'll be in the media. I don't think he enjoys, I don't think he enjoys, even though he's great at it, right. I don't think he enjoys the media stuff very much. I mean, I know he doesn't. Um, so, but, but the thing about what I was going to go back to is, you know, he really loves football. Like, he loves being around everybody. He loves being one of the guys. He loves being around the training staff and, uh, you know, the video guys. You know, being one of the boys, sort of. And so I think that even though he'd be tempted, um, I think he might feel like he's leaving some chips on the table. And there's no reason, if he came back the way that team is, I mean, there's no reason they couldn't win it again. Nope. They'll be right there again. Yep. So, you know, I kind of think he... I think he, I would bet he would come back, but it's possible. It is possible that he would that he would say that's enough. Right. It, it, just the thought of like the way he could, like if they cash this one in and he decides to come back, and certainly they'd be good enough to do it again. He could. 
do exactly what Elway did. He could go out with two Super Bowls on the Broncos. Like, just exactly yeah. like Elway. I mean, that'd be nuts, and, right? And I think that, yeah, I think that's a really, um, right. that would be really a, a appealing thing. He, you know, he's not going to stay too long. He's not going to um, overstay. But I also think if he went out right now, you know, he might be thinking, look, look how easy it came this year. I mean, look how much he did. Um, this year without even tremendous arm strength. I mean, he's only getting, that arm and that nerve, it's all only getting stronger. Right. So, you know, it might be it might be tough for him to walk away from it. He did. Yeah, because the thing is, you, let's say he wins it this year. Yeah, then he's got the monkey off his back. But, w- but what if he goes back and wins another one? He wins a third. Then he's got yeah, his then money, he can really, yep. can really start to talk about is he the best quarterback ever. Right, and I think that does matter to him. I think he's got a really good appreciation for the game and where he stands, and I think, I mean, you would know better than I, because I'd never had a chance to sit down and talk about him, write about him like you did, but he just comes off as one of those guys that I think his place in the game does mean something to him. Yeah, but he also said, you know, I'm just now that you say it, I'm just thinking about it. He said, you know, I've had enough film study for, you know, multiple lifetimes. I mean, I definitely think that there's an element of it um, that's worn on him and that he would be, I think he would be content to walk away from it if, if he had to, but it just feels he did so much work on that rehab. And I feel like if he did, if he, if he left now, it, it might feel like he, he cut it a little bit short. Right. Well, listen, um, we, every year around Christmas time, we kind of take a break. And then when we come back, we kind of call it like the next season, just kind of how we order and group these. So this is kind of the first uh, episode of our fourth season. And, you being the guy who's been on more than anyone 15 times now, really, I, I very, very sincerely just want to thank you for all the time you've put into making this kind of what it is at this point. Uh, no one is kind oh, of, yeah, so thank you so much. And again, for the time and perspective today, we really appreciate everything that you've meant to this show for so long. So thank you very much. No, no problem, Steve. Thanks a lot. Thank you guys for having me. Okay, we'll talk soon, Lee. Okay, take care. Bye. All right, season premiere of the Sportscasters, season four. We're back uh, from an interview with Lee Jenkins. You mentioned this before. This isn't necessarily one of our greatest of all times here today, but there could be an argument made that that last interview we just did with uh, Lee Jenkins is one of the greatest we've done of all time here. That was great. Yeah, he was really good. I know uh, Sherman's been getting a lot of hate and kind of defense for that hate, but, I mean, man, Lee lays out a pretty good defense for the guy. And just a really interesting perspective, I think, to t- have a guy who's literally written a long feature very recently on Peyton Manning, who is certainly one side of the coin, and Richard Sherman, who is going to be the other with the Super Bowl. So that was great. Yeah. Uh, so greatest of all time, I'm going to kick it off this week. We're going sports-related here, and we're sharing a couple of these. Uh Sharing the sports ones, I should say. Yeah. It's the greatest sports movie villain of all time. Uh, this comes from, I believe, SI had a piece on it. Yeah, you said on the Extra, extra Mustard. mustard yeah, right? that's what it is. Kind of their answer to the uh, page, two. page two silliness from ESPN. Um, 
They had a list of top 25 guys. I'm going to go with, I believe it was their number three. I could be wrong about that. From an underrated movie, I would say, especially because one of the other guys' movies is so much highly considered as far as comedies go. I'm going to say Big Earn McCracken from Kingpin is the greatest sports movie villain of all time. Uh, he might not be the most evil. There's there's a few guys out there. You mentioned the bad guy from Karate Kid 2 essentially sought out to have a fight to the death. So right, that, yeah. That's, that's pretty evil for what is essentially a kid's movie. But uh, Bigger McCracken uh, gets bonus points for the world's greatest hair maybe of all time. And uh, he was... I believe somewhat instrumental. I'd have to watch the movie again in Woody Harrelson losing his hand, I think earlier in yep. the movie. And, uh, he's just hateable. He's, uh, the Muhammad Ali. If Muhammad Ali were ugly and fat of bowling, uh, he's, he's awesome. He's the most awesome movie villain of all time. Sports I just, movie villain. I just thought of this because you mentioned a bowling movie and the big Lebowski is kind of the other bowling movie, right? Sure. Did you know that there's a, and we'll have to talk next time we have Alex Belfon, who was involved in the Big Lebowski. Right. Uh, Sport of Sportscasters Time. You know, in North Tonawanda, where we sit right now, every year there's a Big Lebowski, Lebowski Fest. Fest. I've heard of Lebowski Fest. It I was didn't know just, there was one here. It was just the other day. Really? Yeah, and it's over at the Riviera Theater. Yeah, I hear people dress in robes and boxer shorts and go and drink Caucasians, he calls them, the White Russians. Yeah. If you need more information on <laughs> the uh, Big Lebowski Fest of Western New York, I, I can at least tell you where it is because I live five minutes from it. Sweet. Uh, my greatest sports movie villain of all time, it's a really simple choice for me if you know anything about me and kind of where I come from in terms of movie passions. It's the Cobra Kai Sensei, John. Sensei John. I guess you'd pronounce it Chris. Chris. Crease, it's K-R-E-S-S-E. However that's pronounced, I should probably know that. I just don't can't think of it right this second. But uh yeah, a very easy choice for me as the greatest sports villain of all time. Probably if I pick a number two, it'd be Johnny. John yeah. You know what I mean? He'd probably be my number two for the way he tortures poor Danielson in that movie. But wow, talk about a great sports villain. You said he was on the list, right? I didn't look at it. You did. He made it and the uh, and, and Johnny, Johnny made, made it. it. Yeah. I, I was surprised the guy from the third movie didn't make it because his was kind of the most uh, psychotic. Yeah. Like, well, first of all, John the whole time made them believe he was dead. Or no, the other guy made them believe that John was dead. Right. And then the guy befriends Danielson. Yeah, really diabolical yeah. scheme. And then they seek to bully him into joining that tournament even though he doesn't want to and uh uh what's his master holy cow uh what's daniel son's sense mr miyagi mr miyagi didn't want to coach him for that or teach him so yeah kind of uh it's kind of a diabolical thing to do to a teenage kid <laughs> for grown men to do people to had it out for that daniel yeah son. poor guy <laughs> yeah all right our second thing this week that the only thing we have that isn't shared my greatest of all time uh I have a daughter, and she's getting of age where if you need to get something around the ho- done around the house, she'll, movie. she'll pay attention to a movie. Uh, and selfishly, I actually like the movies she has, a lot of the Pixar movies. Disney movies are good too, but uh, I'm more of like a Lion King, Aladdin type. She's got Cinderella now. That never really did it for me. It's Snow White, those type. The older ones don't do it. The Lion King, Aladdin, those were good, but Pixar are my favorite. So I'm going to say the greatest Pixar movie of all time, feature length, is... Hold on. Can I guess what it's going to be? Yes. Up? No, Up is really good. Uh, 
Uh, they're all really good. Uh, I'm going to say Toy Story, the original, okay. the original Pixar movie. You could probably argue that it's the greatest movie trilogy of all time because there's really no drop off. Every other trilogy, there's some sort of movie that is just not doesn't stand up to the other two. But uh, toy, the original Toy Story, I think, in what it did for the CGI genre, I guess it it's amazing. It's, it's funny. Uh, it has everything. It has a good message. It's for me. It's the greatest Pixar movie of all time. Trying to think, there's only like twelve of them. I'm trying to but, think what I would say. I was I was just guessing up because I know that's really acclaimed. It's really it is. Yeah, really good. I, I I've seen it. I I think one time, but Toy Story. There's I know it three Toy Story. It wouldn't be Cars. Up, I didn't care cars, for Cars. Incredibles. Cars I liked a little bit. I like the Incredibles. Um, I guess it'd be pretty hard for me to Monsters disagree Inc. that much with you. Toy Story. I guess. Uh, but, is Brave one? Brave might be one. I haven't seen that though. Ratatouille is one. Ratatouille is right. one. Yep. Yeah, you might have it there. I wouldn't argue too hard against you there. Uh, this week, the week without football was always a big week for me as a kid because I could always very easily talk my parents into buying the Royal Rumble. Uh, <laughs> the WWF at the time brilliantly slotted this pay-per-view in the kind of first dead Sunday where everyone was kind of looking for something to fill that football time that they'd gotten so accustomed to. And I could always really easily sell my parents on, hey, can we get the Royal Rumble this year? When is it? The week there's no football. Oh, all right. Right. Uh, The greatest Royal Rumble of all time by a mile is the 1992 edition of this. The 1992 Royal Rumble, if you're not familiar with it, was the first time and I think still the only time that the winner was made WWF champion. Oh. For one reason or another, which I can't exactly remember. Now the rule is you're the you the uh, you get a match. Right. Yep, you get a match at WrestleMania. For one reason or another, another the WWE title was withheld. And actually, I have the exclamation here. Um, at the Survivor Series, Hulk Hogan was defeated for the belt by the Undertaker. Okay. He was immediately given a rematch in a joke of a money grab pay-per-view called This Tuesday in Texas. Hogan won that match. But there was some controversy in the change, so President Jack Tunney stepped in and stripped Hogan of the belt. Okay. And it was vacant until the Royal Rumble when the winner of the 30-man match would be given the... The belt. This was held in Albany uh, at the Knickerbocker Arena at the time. Now I think it's called Pepsi Center. And uh, Ric Flair was the winner. And Ric Flair, I believe, entered three. Oh, okay. And not only was the athletic achievement of gutting it out for that long, (laughs) which I'm sure that's exhausting. Sure. If you see the way that that match is competed, basically having to pretend you're about to be eliminated and hold on you know, for dear life for a long time. Uh, he did a great job there. And what really makes it great was the brilliance of Bobby Heenan. Uh, Bobby Heenan calls this pay-per-view with Gorilla Monsoon. I think I've said before, actually, when we did the David Shoemaker interview, I mentioned that I thought the greatest announcing team of all time was Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. And they do an unbelievable job of calling this event. And uh, the line in it is, it's not fair to flare. 
which is what Heenan <laughs> repeats that. probably 150 <laughs> times. It's not fair to fight. Actually, didn't we watch this together on one of our Pearl Jam trips in a hotel room in Albany? That sounds Hartford right. That sounds like that. right. We may have, yeah. Yeah. I do remember you saying that it's not fair to, fair to flare thing. Yeah, it went on all in all. So the greatest Royal Rumble of all time, January 19th, 1992. I I definitely don't have the, the encyclopedic history of WWF, as it were, that you do. But my first thought that came to my head was my least favorite Royal Rumble of all time was, I, and I looked it up, 1999, and Vince McMahon winning against right. Steve Austin. Yeah, that's Be- brutal. Nothing will make you yell about a fake sports rules more than that Royal Rumble that these other men are fighting each other in the ring for hours while these two dummies chase each other around the hallways of an arena fighting because they shirked the rules and just went out under the ropes. I'm sitting there watching my TV like, everyone might as well just go under the ropes then. <laughs> Why doesn't everyone just leave the ring, go under the ropes? You're not going to count you out. There's no count outs. Uh, and in looking that up, I found Deadspin had at one point, January 21st, wow, that's strange, exactly one year ago, Big Nasty wrote a column on the five worst Royal Rumble winners in history. And I'll go through those real quick. Okay, Vince McMahon, let me see if I can guess some. Is Hackshaw Jim Duggan on the list? I, you know what? It's I'll have to flip through them. It's a stupid... Uh, oh, it's a slideshow? Yep. I will say mm, they're about half... Well, here, Vince I'll, McMahon was the number one. I'll throw one. a few names out, and we'll see if they end up being on the list. Okay. I'll say Hackshaw Jim Duggan is probably one. No, it's not. It's not. Okay. Two are real modern, like post-2000. Okay. Big John Studd is maybe one. That's one of them. Okay. That's number five. He won the second Royal Rumble. 89. The first one that was on pay-per-view. Hulk dominated the 89 Hulk, Royal Rumble, and then Big John Studd wins. And then Hulk won the next two. I doubt he's on there. No. Um, I'll just throw one more name out. You say there's a real modern one. I'm going to say that someone really silly won it, like the Hurricane or something like that. I don't know, though. No, number four was Randy Orton in 2009. Uh, they said Orton went on to Ben as the heavy favorite, giving his positioning in the main storyline. So the predictability of his win uh, soured its novelty. 2011, I'm not even going to read about this guy because I don't even know who he is. Alberto Del Rio won it. Okay. And uh, Lex Luger in 94. Okay. They count as the worst. But, yeah, I <laughs> I don't remember ever being more mad because the Royal Rumble was always my favorite growing up, too. Just it's a great gimmick. Novelty yeah, it's it. yeah, great the way it's set you up. You kind of bet it's on who's coming booking. in. Yeah, or, it's brilliantly booked. Or you pick, like, a fantasy team of guys, and when your guy comes out first, you're like, damn it, now he's never going to win. Right. But, uh, yeah, Vince McMahon, that one sullied the whole experience for me. Our last thing is another shared event here in we're honor gonna, of our season premiere yeah we're gonna go with the greatest sportscasters guest of all time we have done this ranking i guess in the past but this is kind of a fluid one and i'm gonna say my pick is a bit of a bubble pick because we haven't talked to him in a little while but i'm gonna still stick with dave uh dave damashek is the one guy i would say and no disrespect to anybody else but he's the one guy i feel like if we met him somewhere he'd hang out and talk to us uh it's the stuff he does after we say we're done recording, that is the best. He's talked to us for a half an hour, just talked shop about what we're doing or offered us advice while sitting in a hospital parking lot or while sitting in his driveway because his kid fell asleep in the back of the car and he doesn't want to wake her up or whatever. Like He just goes above and beyond uh, to make us feel like he's not just a guest on the show. So... 
But like I said, he's on the bubble because we haven't talked to him in a little while. So I feel like he has a vested interest in the success of this show. Yes. Like I think he cares whether or not we do well. He's I don't know how many guys. I'm sure a few of them because uh, we joke about our your Yale quota right f- for the show. So I'm sure a few of the guys sent you congratulations. But I know he definitely was one of them. Yep, all weekend he was texting me. Got actually. Yep. personal messages and stuff like that. So just uh, him and Lee Jenkins, nicest guys ever. But just something about Dave that uh, just puts him over the top for me. Still, we talked right before about how that last interview with Lee might have been the best one we've ever done. And I think maybe if the question was what is the best single interview we ever did, I think it's the second time SL Price was ever on this show. Um, there's no real reason to lay out the case, but that always is going to stick out in my mind as like one of the best interviews we've ever done. Hmm. I thought really hard about putting Lee. He's obviously the one who's been on the most. I thought about Richard Deitch for this spot because yep. it's always usually pretty entertaining when he's on. He's so mean to us, though. He is. He, <laughs> in a playful way. Right. But <laughs> I went with Dave as well. Yeah. Um, I almost think it's hard not to say Dave. I. I could think of a reason not to say everyone else. I couldn't think of a reason not to say Dave. I think it's Dave Damashek as the greatest uh, sportscaster's guest of all time. Dave is the one guy I generally keep quiet during the interviews. If I have a question, I'll jump in. But for the most part, I stay quiet. That said, I think Dave would be a guy that would at least know who I was. And on top of that, he might even remember that I have a kid. And uh, that's He definitely cool does. And every time I do I, – a lot of the interviews we do, Don isn't here. It happens a lot just because of the way we schedule this thing. Right, right. And if I do an interview with Dave and Don isn't here, it's immediately recognized by Dave, and Dave has to ask me about Don before we can start. Yeah, it's a super cool guy. Yeah, so. All right, uh, greatest guest of all time, sportscaster's guest of all time, I got Dave Damaschek. Greatest Royal Rumble of all time, I went 1992. And greatest sports movie villain of all time, I went uh, the Cobra Kai Sensei. I have Dave as well. Best Pixar movie, greatest Pixar movie of all time is Toy Story, and the greatest sports movie villain. I went with Ernie Big Ern McCracken. All right, we'll be right back with Al Halford. All right, like the Matthew Goodman, our next guest is from Vancouver, Canada, and writes for Pro Hockey Talk at NBC Sports, and is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscasters, welcome to Mike Halford. How are you doing today, Mike? Good, how are you doing? So I guess the Matthew Goodman, they're actually from, uh, you have to help me out with this, Coquilitium or something? <laughs> That's butchered. Coquitlam, yeah, yeah. close. Coquitlam, British Columbia, that is correct. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so, but I'm pretty sure Matt Good now lives in Vancouver, so you probably see him at the grocery st- store and stuff, right? Oh yeah, yeah, we're really tight. I actually used to work at a, I used to work in the credit department of a music store that uh, Matthew Good and the band used to get their equipment from. So yeah, I think everyone in Vancouver is somehow like tangentially related to, to Matthew Good. That's funny. You know, I live in Buffalo, which is obviously a border town, and. Um, so Canadian music has always been pretty linked, and I spent my whole early 
teens and and mid twenties, and really still to some point, not as much. You know, going back and forth and and seeing concerts, and um, I always love the Matt Good ones because they're Matt Good. I, I was I was telling someone this the other day. He was sort of like the Richard Sherman of rock and roll, just like you know. I remember that. They, they, they used to he, is, tell- he, he runs his mouth a lot. He's yeah. out there. He's a funny guy. And then he, he kind of goes out of the public eye for a while. And then he kind of gets back in. He hasn't, he hasn't done a lot in the last couple of years. But there was like a stretch there in the late 90s where he was like obviously one of the biggest musicians coming out of Vancouver. But one of the biggest in Canada, really. I remember that he had a t-shirt that, that the band would sell at their concert that said, I heard Matt Good's a real asshole. Yeah, yeah, that was, <laughs> and they also used to call themselves the Matthew Great Band. So that was the other one too. Right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, appreciate it. So I guess you're probably getting a lot of this being right in Vancouver. But what went down on Hockey Day in Canada out there with the with the Flames and the Canucks? And what did you think of the league's response to uh, to Torts there? Well, I mean, Tortorella is a fiery guy, and I think he's made that pretty evident in all three of his stops in the NHL. I mean, Tampa Bay, New York, and then Vancouver. So uh, it was shocking, obviously, because you don't expect to see a professional and a guy that's supposed to be the quote-unquote leader of men, you know, resort to basically a barroom brawl tactics. I mean, that's what it was, really. He was jumping over the bar to get at somebody, and it just happened to be Bob Harley. So the other thing that I think a lot of people are glossing over and not really focusing on enough is the psyche and the, the Canucks as a team, really. I mean, you go back three years to when they lost that cup final in 2011 to Boston. Uh, they were bullied out of that final, really. I mean, they, their toughness was questioned. And it's crazy to think that three years down the road, it's still an issue with that team. So Toronto was brought in to make them tougher and to make them accountable and to have guys stick up for one another. So what I think happened was a manifestation of that where he saw it. He said, look, if I'm going to tell my guys that they got to have each other's backs and stick up for one another, then i got to do the same thing. Now, he obviously went a little crazy in trying to display that, but he did it. As far as the league's reaction goes, they had no choice. They had to sit him down for a considerable amount of time. And 15, game, 15 days and six games is a considerable amount of time to be away from your team, especially since it basically goes right up until the Olympic break, so we won't see them then either. So it's a pretty stiff penalty, but it was deserved, and both Tortorella and the Canucks organization have said that. Two quick things I'm curious about in response to that. One is you mentioned that cup, and... It, it was. I always thought it was so interesting that they got muscled out of that cup, like you said, despite being the team that delivered the most remembered shot, the knockout blow in that in that in that series, and that almost kind of changed it the other way. And uh, another thing is, like sometimes when you get that label, it's so hard to shake. And the Sabers had that problem, you know, before they went into uh, obscurity and, and disaster range, and it, it felt like they. <laughs> They tried so hard to change that image on the ice that they ended up with almost a team of stiffs in a way, and maybe the yeah, it's, you know, it's a it's a good analogy actually bringing up the Sabers because you're right. They went out and they got Steve Ott and they got John Scott, and they're like, you know what, we need to get tougher. And it was all in relation to one event, which was Ryan Miller getting bowled over right. by Milan Lucic, and then nobody stepping up. And it's a good comparison to Vancouver because Vancouver had gone through much of the same albeit they went about their transition over a longer period of time. I mean, Buffalo's was almost overnight. It was like Miller gets run over. Within a couple months, they're changing up the core. And, uh, the, you know, it, it, the cup final, yeah, the, the Aaron Rome hit on Nathan Horton was the one everyone's going to remember for right. his violence. And uh, to, uh, Aaron Rome is going to go down in history because no one is ever going to have a stiffer penalty uh, in terms of suspension in a Stanley Cup final. No one has ever been suspended for four games in a Stanley Cup final before. 
most of them ever was one, and that was Chris Pronger, and he quadrupled that. Right. And it was, and it's. No, I, I, I would stand by that that will never ever be matched again. I mean, it's just it's unfathomable looking back on it. But the the thing with the rest of that series was that Vancouver was never able to match that intensity again. And a lot of people said it was like they they kind of poked the bear when they did that because you got to remember when that hit happened. They were up two nothing in the series, yep. and they were actually up in game three. And all of a sudden, it got physical, and it became the Bruins game and the Bruins series from then on in. And it was just a collapse by the Canucks. I mean, another thing that doesn't happen in the Cup final very often is a team goes up two nothing and then loses in Game Seven on home ice for nothing. I mean, it just doesn't happen. So it's uh, it was a definitely like a, a franchise altering moment. And you're seeing three again three years later, you're seeing what's happening now is that they're still trying to change it. This might be a little bit of a silly question to ask someone from Vancouver who knows the culture of the team, but I don't know it quite as well. Is there any is there any feeling of like the ownership or the support for Tortorella souring a little bit after this incident? Is there anything like, ooh, you know, maybe that's not the guy we want representing us in that way, or is he still pretty firm there, or is he going to have to prove himself, or is, is there anything like that going on? Everyone that I've talked to and a lot of the, the media guys in the city, uh, without having it officially on record, are convinced that this was the owner's hire to begin with. The owner, Francesco Aquilini, uh, wanted someone that was going to come in and change, not the team, a complete overhaul, but definitely change the culture a little bit. Now, you got to remember when Mike Gillis, the GM, came into Vancouver, he inherited Elaine Vigneault, the coach. So if you go on that sort of old adage within sports that every GM gets a chance to hire one coach, well, Gillis kind of did, but kind of did because he got his coach, but his coach, I think there was a lot of pressure from upstairs to, to, to do Tortorella as the coach, to make him the guy. Um, so I don't think that they're going to waver on him right now. Um, I think Tortorella is probably able to sell everyone in the organization on what this was all about, and it wasn't him losing his cool 100%. Yes, he lost his cool, but it was also about team toughness throughout, and it starts with the coach, and it works its whole way down. So. I'd, I'd be very surprised if this soured anybody in the organization on Tortorella. I think it may even strengthen their belief that he's the guy because right. he sort of, I mean, he stood by his convictions, I guess, in this instance. Uh, real quick, I want to ask you something, uh, kind of a sidebar, just because I'm a huge, huge Burray fan, and there was that great night in November. I want to say it was November 1st or 2nd where they finally retired his jersey there. Is that a sign to everyone that everyone's cool with Beret and all is forgotten with how things ended there? Yeah, that was sort of the overriding theme of the yeah. whole night. I was actually I was at the rink for that. I, I didn't even go as media. I got tickets and we went, and I wanted to be part of the crowd. Because you got to remember, uh, Vancouver, for the first 25, 30 years of the franchise's history, was a terrible team. They never did anything. They made two Stanley Cup finals, once in 82, which the team was wildly overmatched. And then in 94, when Burry was there, where he kind of led him on this crazy run, and they had all the upsets in the playoffs and nearly beat the Rangers in Game 7. And that was really because of Burry. And he was the best player that the city ever had. And as far as exciting players go, I mean, when you watched him in his prime, there were very few guys in that early 90s, late 80s era that could play at the speed in which he did and do things at the speed in which he did. Like, you watch the game now, and you watch a lot of the stuff that Crosby does with speed and with pace and doing things at 100 miles an hour. And that's what Burry was doing in a generation where guys were still really slow. I mean, it stood out so much. And to see it all kind of come together on that night, it was awesome. I, I think that the accident was really buried. It had been a long time since his really bitter divorce from the Canucks. And you got to remember, like, the entire regime that 
was involved with the team when Bray did that is now long gone. Different ownership, different GM, different coaches, everybody. So it was kind of a fresh start and a way to get him back in the mix. And it was good. It was it was an awesome night. And, you know, everyone really, like, embraced it. And I think uh, all hatchets were buried at that point. That 94 run was such an amazing thing, you know, especially with the way it started with the three overtime wins against Calgary, just, to, you know, down 3-1 and, the save that McLean made right before the Bray goal in double overtime, and then was it Dallas and Toronto were the two other teams I want to say, and Bray scoring highlight goals almost every night. I can remember the one I want to say against Toronto, and he's going so fast that he ends up sliding into the boards, and right down to the guy getting a penalty shot in, in the finals. You know what I mean? Just like almost surreal. But um, Roy McGregor was on this show. Uh, he's been on a few times. And we were talking about him going into the Hall of Fame, and he actually went in the same group that Burry went in. So we got into the, the conversation about Burry a little bit. And he's like, you know, Burry played in all the years I've been doing this, you know, which is a lot for him, obviously. He's like, the single best game I ever seen a forward play was in the 98 Olympics. So I, I figured he's talking about the five-goal game Burry had in the semis against Finland. And he's like, it was that gold medal game against the Czechs. He's like, I've never seen a forward play a game that good. You know, it's a one nothing loss. And I was really surprised by it. But the, the, he sold me on it. It didn't take much. I'm a huge Bray guy. So I was all about embracing yeah. that. But, you know, it was uh, it was uh, crazy to think. But, um, yeah. So- yeah, I mean, his international career, like, that's what, a lot of things with the Rocky Hall of Fame is it's based so heavily on what they do in the NHL. But you look at a lot of these guys, and obviously the Russian players are the biggest ones, but their international careers and the, the quality that they put up on the international stage needs to be regarded more. Because Bray, you got to remember, like, his window was so small right. for when he was actually a dominant player because of the knee injuries. You need to take into account literally every game that he played. So it's like, I mean, anything that he did during that window when he was on top of his game, you need to take into account. And the Olympics was a perfect example and, I mean, even, like, those two years when he was in Florida, and Florida wasn't a marquee team, and he was carrying that franchise. I mean, winning the Rocket Richard and scoring goals at will, all that stuff. You just need, if you can take it a snapshot of how good he was over a relatively short period of time, you're like, wow, he was literally one of the best players ever. Yeah, still to this day, he's one of the all-time leading scorers in the World Junior Tournament. You know, uh, he was great in the Olympics. He's got an all-star game MVP. It sounds like we could probably go on and on talking about Burray all night, probably. Cause it <laughs> seems like I found another guy who'd be into that. But, um, yeah, so, what, all right, what do you, okay, so Canada now is what, and i got to ask you about this. So this is, uh, what is it, five years or four years now they haven't won a gold in two years in a row that they haven't won a medal at all in the World Juniors. And so now this Olympic tournament which is totally different but i feel like has this even greater like civic importance than it already has in canada what are kind of the thoughts behind what appears to be a dominant gold or nothing team that canada is sending to associate in a couple weeks yeah it's very similar to 2010 i think the one big difference here is that look they brought back the entire uh selection committee headed by steve eisenman and the same coaching staff largely because they felt they learned so much from the 2010 games. And the big one that I keep hearing hammered over and over again is the importance of the two-man units. The, you want to have Caves and Sharp together because they played a line. The Crosby-Kunitz one is so obvious because they played together. And on defense, that's why they've got Bo Meester and Petrangelo. You want to have inherent chemistry 
and not in and not in threes, which is oddly enough. They just want to do it in twos, which is kind of a theme around the NHL. You want to have two guys that know how to play together, and then you can plug and play a third guy based on how you think that third guy is going. So they, they really they didn't do it as much, although they did it to a certain degree in 2010, but they've really got an emphasis on it here, which is kind of interesting why they didn't go with Stamkos and St. Louis, although I think that has a lot to do with the fact that they don't think Stamkos is going to be healthy for the game. So that's the one big one right now is there. There's a lot of confidence within the group that the lessons that they learned in 2010, they're carrying over, and they're going to try and implement them here. And the trickle-down effect, as you saw with the American roster, too, is that David Boyle may mention the fact that, yeah, we want uh, David Backus and T.J. Oshie to play together, and we want a defensive pair that has Paul Martin and Brooks Orpik. And it makes sense because you've got to have that immediate chemistry. You don't have time to practice. You don't have a lot of time to work on things. You have to put guys out there and they have to click right away. Is it is there such a fine line in this tournament? Is is any of what you said any different if Pat Kane scores in that overtime instead of Sidney Crosby? Is is that looked yeah, at any yeah, different? Yeah, yeah. Canada goes in with a way bigger chip on its shoulder, absolutely, because uh, 06 was like a national embarrassment, disappointment on how badly they did in Torino. Right. Uh, if Canada if Canada doesn't win there, I mean, you're talking about four years of angst leading up to this tournament, probably looking at some different selections, probably. That, it's just what Canada does. Like, right. you mentioned the World Juniors. When, when they fail, they're going to reevaluate it. Even if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. They don't think like that. Like, there's going to be an, an evaluation process if you don't win gold. And it was that, that you know, margin of error was, you know, someone's, the U.S. scoring in overtime right. instead of Canada. So, I mean, that's, that's definitely something to consider that the, 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 the pressure and scrutiny, while it's high already, it'd be even higher if they didn't have the gold from 2010. That's, that's so crazy, you know, because I'm just listening to you saying, and you're like, the, the evaluation process, everything is going back to how well everything went in, in 2010, and it's one different play in overtime away from saying, oh, we did everything right, but then we gave up a goal in the last minute, and then they won in overtime, and now we're going home with silver. Oh, let, 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 me, let me clarify, though. What they learned in 2010 was they didn't have enough of that. They okay. didn't have enough of what, yeah, because I remember they were very concerned about not having a proper line for Crosby. Crosby, if you go back over the stats on that tournament, Crosby really didn't have a very good tournament on no. the goal. Yep, and I remember Wasn't that, Wasn't producing, too. didn't have a ton, yeah. They thought things would work, is they thought you could put X guy and Y guy on Crosby's line and it would work. And they went with the, the Marlowe and Thornton and Heatley line, and it just didn't work in international hockey. And then they, they, they just found their forwards, were, it was very tough. The only one that they had real success with, and I think is what they built a lot of it off of, was with Perry and Getzlaff out of Anaheim, is they took them on the team and kept them together, and then they put Brendan Morrow on that line, and it just clicked. It was probably Canada's best line through the qualification and then, like, the, 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 the quarterfinal game. They were great together. And that's what I meant by taking it, that they learned that that was their success, and they did more of it this time around. Although I got to admit, I thought, I thought having Duncan Keith and Brent Seabrook would have been a natural pairing on defense, but they opted not to go that way. On defense, they wanted four righties and four lefties, and that's what they ended up doing. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, Mike Halford is writes for Pro Hockey Talk, which you can find. It's part of the NBC Sports I kind of always feel like sometimes I have to explain the hockey stuff to my people because I don't know how much they know. You know what I mean? Like It's like, okay, so this is where you're going to go for that. But everyone who reads Pro Football Talk, this is the hockey extension of that. And there's a great app, a great app that uh, NBC has made that has the feeds of all the different sport talks. And you can find all of Mike's work on that app or on the website or on Twitter where he's at HalfordPHT. 
Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hopefully we can do it again another time, maybe talk a little bit more. And one last real quick thing before I send you up because it's kind of a, a Buffalo-related question. And it's going to be – I don't mean to put you uh, you know in a spot here, but when you look at the second half of the season, I'm sure the big story is going to be which one of these Sabres forwards is going to be the one that ultimately breaks Gretzky's goal record this year. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely it. Right. That and was, hopefully they uh, hopefully they don't trade away Matt Molson before he gets a chance to do it. Right, right. Because I mean, it's just there's so many goals flying in the nets every night up there that you know I don't. No, but seriously, <laughs> last thing out. Would you uh, would you try to convince Miller to stay if you were them, or would you would you see what kind of measly package you could get, relatively speaking, for him? Yeah, I I, I definitely convince or try and convince him to stay just yeah. because I don't know what you're going to get in return. Not I just enough, don't right. see. A huge, a huge wealth of uh, options out there, and I really have never seen a team at the deadline go out and get a number one goalie. In fact, Jason and I, the other guy that writes for PHC, were talking about well, when's the last time the team's gone out and totally revamped their goalie position? They just don't really, and you can't bring in Miller and not expect him to challenge to be your number one, if not be your number one outright from the start. So, I, you know, I, he's a good goalie. He's had a really nice year this year, considering how bad they've been. He's had a uh, great they played year. Better. He has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has. He has a really yeah. good. They played better under yeah. Nolan. I think Nolan understands that Miller's a really important piece to have for a young team because a young team can really lose their way when they're letting it a ton of goals and they don't have good goaltending behind them. But the problem is, is it's like if you're Ryan Miller, are you going to want to sign on for more of this? And I, I, I wouldn't. You know, begrudge the guy if he, if he left because he wants to a fresh right. start and he wants to try somewhere else. The flip side of that is that I don't know if he's got a lot of options available to him. Like I look around the league and I'm like, where's a place that Ryan Miller could sign, be the number one, and then challenge for a cup, which is what I assume he wants to do at this stage of his career. And I just don't see a lot of options. We don't have a ton of time to get into it, but just real quick, I mean, if you think about the Sabres, and maybe Montreal has proved this a little bit, that it doesn't need to be forever to turn it around, but the Sabres are going to have a ton of money to spend with an owner who's willing to pretty much spend it. They got a ton of picks. I mean, I don't know. If I was them, I might sign Miller and Molson and, and just see how quick you can do it. I, maybe that's naive or someone who wants more money out of his the bang for his buck for his season ticket price, but I don't see why, you know, I don't know. But uh, we'll talk more well, about Well, look, that. I mean, you want to perfectly have a look at Edmonton right now. Edmonton's got way too many young guys and not enough good quality veterans that can lead the way. And they're swimming. So you do need, you need guys like Miller. You need guys like Molson. You need, I mean, even a guy like Steve Ott, who I think has been already been rumored about to go at the deadline. I think he's a guy that you want to try and hold on to if you can because he knows how to play and he's, he knows how to be a professional. And that's important when you've got a ton of young guys coming into the system. All right. And how many picks do you need, right? You know what exactly, I mean? I mean yeah. they, all right, but I already kept you longer than I would, and I know you're squeezing in. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it, and hopefully we can talk again soon. Sure, man. I enjoyed it. Have fun. Thanks. Right. Thanks, buddy. All right, we want to thank Al Halford for making his Sportscasters debut today. Really appreciate him giving us some time. Time has been something that has been gotten away from us a little bit, as we mentioned off the top. It's been a while since we did a show. And all that time that we're away, it almost seemed like once a week something came up 
where I was like, oh, man, I wish we had a show so we could <laughs> kind of talk about that a little bit. And I guess the first thing I want to know from you, Donna, we're going to go over some sports things and some personal things that have happened since we've been gone and just kind of talk about them a little bit. This is probably going to be more interesting for people who kind of care that we host this and probably less interesting for people who looked it up because they heard Lee or Al were going to be on. Sure. Right. Right. The whole thing. Yeah. Right. So, uh, Don, how was your Christmas, New Year's holiday? Did anything particularly interesting or notable happen? Um, No. I mean, Christmas is my favorite holiday. I'm sure with the girl being a little bit older, oh, yeah, it had yeah. to be more exciting this year in terms of Christmas morning and gifts and sure, stuff. Sure. She quickly learned what presents mean, and she quickly learned that uh, clothes were like <laughs> Bust. the grade F of gifts. Right. But uh as a parent now, you realize that those are the best things people can get her because she needs a lot of them. She grows out of them. So, but yeah, she would open a present, get clothes, and Throw be it like, to the side. put it to the side, go more, <laughs> more. And uh, so, yeah, that was a lot of fun having the first Christmas that she kind of understood what the heck was going on. Did she have a favorite gift? Um, we start Christmas morning at my mom's house, and my mom. Through a weird set of circumstances, none of which involve my mom becoming a lesbian. She lives with another woman now. <laughs> okay. And uh, this woman, Liz, gave her a gift first. It was like a little Mickey and Minnie like yacht thing. And that was it. Like Because she hadn't quite figured out how cool it is to open a lot of presents, Like she took forever to open all the presents for my mom's because she had this little Minnie Mouse yacht that she played with all the little pieces and slides and stuff. So that was her immediate favorite. And then, like... I don't know. Anyone that has kids knows that the kid's favorite gift is whatever one they forgot they had because it's, they haven't seen it for a week, and right. then it becomes their favorite again. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, Christmas the last few years has obviously changed to being – it's always been my favorite holiday of the year, but even more so now because Anthony's home for a long oh, right, period yeah. of time, and that doesn't happen quite as much anymore with him being at Yale and spending summers there to train and work and everything like that. So it's great to have him home. He – is convinced now that he's the key to Buffalo sports success because while he was home, he went to a Bills victory and two Sabres victories. Wow. He went to three games, and they won all three. Which and this year, I wonder if that happened. Impossible yeah. Could that have even happened again this, this year? year. No. He was at the Bills the Bills win against um, Miami, maybe. Did they play them at the very end? They did. Yeah, they killed him. That was the game That's he right. was at. Yep. And then he was at the Buck goal game. <laughs> and uh, the Sabres went over the Jets, which I think was the first time all year they had won when trailing after two. That could be. So Christmas was great. Um, and other personal things I put in a kitchen floor the you did, weekend yeah. after we went on break. That was kind of cool because our kitchen had been a work in progress basically since the day we moved in one weekend, tore out a wall, and then the kitchen has been a work in progress because uh, we're slow, we don't know what we're doing, so we need help. So we had a friend help with that. And that's pretty awesome. Uh, I don't care about New Year's, so we went to dinner with Miss Caster's parents, then came home and watched the ball drop on TV with Coley and went to bed. I honestly didn't even watch the ball drop. This is the first. I don't care about it either, but uh, <laughs> I selfishly or jealously or whatever feel like I'm missing things when I'm not at them. But. We just had like a quiet night with Molly, uh, and then I think we watched a movie. So we kind of were watching a movie while the ball drop was on. Some sort, of, some, what do you call it, like an indie movie? I think it was. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Ted, who lives at home, or something like that. 
it was pretty funny. We also saw the uh, it was an indie movie with a guy who can safety not guaranteed. I'd recommend both of them if you like quirky, kind of funny, interesting little movies. Safety not guaranteed, and someone who lives at home. I can't remember. I think it's Ted. We watched a lot of movies during break too, and I think the one I'd recommend the most was American Hustle, which I think is the one kind of movie buzz award movie that I think lives up to the hype. I've heard two things about it now. I've heard there's a lot of wigs in it because every character seems to be wearing hair differently. And uh, a friend of mine on Facebook commented today that she thinks the bra budget on that movie must have been zero. I read that. Yeah. So I haven't seen it, but that makes me want to see it even more. Yeah. No, it's a great it's a great movie. The highlight of my break was uh, the whole family and several friends went to New York City to watch Anthony and the rest of the Yale team play at Madison Square Garden. That was really a pretty incredible experience, which is kind of tied into the Saints and kind of the way their season played out. I should say that I am relatively proud of the Saints season. I said right from the beginning I had really high expectations for them. Sure. I wanted them to be in the 13-3 and range. They fell two games short of that. I'll say this. Two games for them were 10 seconds too long. Right. If, you know, the New England and the Carolina game. And that Carolina game, which happened while we were on break, that's a game no one would ever say they won, and they almost did it. It was a day where there was rain literally blowing sideways, yep. so they couldn't throw for a whole quarter. And it, Breeze got sacked seven or eight times. And it was played at the Panthers' pace as opposed to the game in New Orleans, which was clearly played at the Saints' pace, and the Saints blew the doors off of them. That's going to be what my one regret this year is I think the Saints were a lot better than yep. the Carolina, and I think the week is the season is one week longer for them at the least if they get to play that second playoff game at home against San Francisco as opposed to having to go on the road to Seattle one week earlier. Right. The only thing I would say about, and not necessarily just the Saints, but any NFC South team, uh, we talked to Lee, and we talked about how easy it is when discussing Peyton Manning's future to see them in the exact same spot next year. A lot of that has to do with how good that offense is. And a lot of it has to do with how bad the AFC is. I would say, uh, there's no, I mean, if they go on to lose the Super Bowl as a Denver fan, I'd be like, all right, just, just let's fast forward to next year's playoffs. I mean, the regular season is a, is a formality unless Peyton gets hurt or something like that. Uh, the NFC is a totally different story. Uh, the Saints are going to play in a division where Carolina is all of a sudden really good. Atlanta will be better. Atlanta should be better. And Tampa's Tampa going to be in. Be worse, they're right? going to be in day one, right? I mean, they're starting sure. over basically. But I mean, that's where they are now. So right. they're they're at, at least no worse. And you're going to have uh, a team like Green Bay shouldn't be missing their quarterback for six or seven games right. if everything goes Well, right. I think the, key, the NFC is brutal. The key to the Saints season next year, almost as it was this year, is they have to win their division. Yeah. Because obviously the Saints are much better at home. Right. And I said the second that it was clear that Carolina was going to win the division, that the season was over not because I didn't think the Saints could win a road playoff game, but they weren't going to win three. I don't think anyone's going to win three playoff road games in the NFC. Like, you know, nobody wants to go to San Francisco, Seattle, right. Green so Bay. So the key for them next year is going to have to be to find a way to win the division, and they would have done that relatively easily if one of four games were different. They had four lo- one loss, they got killed by Seattle, whatever. You need to be able to play your season to allow a blowout loss at the eventual number one seed stadium on Monday night. That needs to be okay. right? You know, So I throw that game out. They didn't get off the bus in New York. 
They didn't get off the bus in St. Louis. And the New England and Carolina games were 10 seconds too long. So I would expect that everyone thinks that defense played ahead of where they should have been this year. So I expect them to keep getting better. I think the offense will be just fine. I think Drew Brees is still in the midst of his prime. There's no reason to think that he can't be doing what Peyton Manning and Tom Brady are doing three or four years from now. So I expect the Brees and Peyton combo, which has proved to be at least division round or better, basically five of the seven years they've been together in New Orleans. So I'm ready to see it again. And again, though, the key for them is going to be they have to win their division because like they proved this year they can win one road playoff game. They're probably not going to win three. And the reason it was tied into Yale was because on one incredible Saturday, I had the unbelievably stressful doubleheader (laughs) of a Saints playoff game and my brother playing at Madison Square Garden. And uh, luckily for me, I'll keep the short because we're running long here sort of all of a sudden. But um, basically, I left where I was watching the Saints game after the Marshawn Lynch touchdown and mercifully did not have to sit through everything that happened after. Fake hope, maybe? Just the drive down and then getting the extra onside onside kick kick. and debating whether or not Colston should have run it. And then the drive. Oh, boy. Did, Did they ever come out and say if that was a called play? The play at the very end was called. He was doing what he was told. Oh, man. Because they had a lot of time. He could have stepped out. He would have stepped out at the 39-yard line with seven seconds left. So they'd rather do that than a Hail Mary, I guess, catch him? I I mean, there's nothing What Peyton said, that it's something they've seen in film. They had put it in a couple weeks before. The week before the Philly game, they had put it in as, like, the miracle play if needed. Sure. And Colston said, look, it the throw sucked. The, <laughs> the play wouldn't have been as bad or looked as stupid terrible. if I would have thrown it better. Right. So, but I was really kind of upset for the minute or two that I let it upset me the way people were killing Colston on on Twitter because I just thought it got ugly the way this always seems to where, you know, it wasn't just like, while wow, Marcus Colston made a bad football play. It was, wow, Marcus Colston's the biggest idiot ever. Oh, really? You know, no wonder Hofstra doesn't have football anymore. <laughs> you know, wow. all kinds of unnecessarily yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. You know, like I'm, I've haven't seen the play yet. I've seen a still frame of him standing on the 39 yard line with the seven seconds. Oh yeah, I've never seen the play. I hope I can go my whole life without ever seeing it. Marcus Colston's a very special player to me for many reasons, as we said on this show. And there's no way. I'm going to get into blaming him for anything. Yeah, and the odds there. of them winning that game even at that point were pretty minuscule. So, I mean, they still have to complete a Hail Mary, yeah, and then they yeah. have to get a two point conversion, and then they have to be the better team in the overtime. overtime. Right. So, I mean, whatever. But yeah, MSG was amazing. It was a great fun. You know, uh, Senator John Kerry spoke to I saw Yale his pictures, pregame. Yeah. And then, you know, Mark Messier was there, and the garden had a great atmosphere. It was 70% at least Yale fans. Harvard, I don't know where they were. Hmm. Not there. Um, and uh, Yale beat him pretty good. Anthony got an assist. Uh, really kind of a funny thing. So Anthony's team gets a goal, and I know Anthony has an assist. So I'm watching the play. So I'm like, oh, this is going to be cool. The PA guy is going to announce him. And he goes, uh, Yale, third goal, scored by number two, Gus Young, assisted by number seven, Matt Killian, and number 19, Jimmy Vesey, <laughs> who is the 19 for Harvard. <laughs> So I was like, so he never got announced on. Uh, so then a couple minutes later, we have a the guy's like, correction. Oh, correction on the L goal. 
<laughs> Yell skull scored by number two Gus Young. Yeah, good on them because I wonder who would, I wonder who said that to them because I mean, to me that would probably mean a lot to hear your name in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, I asked Anthony about it at later, and he's like, "No, I couldn't hear, it, didn't notice, or didn't catch it." But oh, really? I'm sure to everyone that was there for him, which by the way was. I think we had 11 rooms at the hotel, so it was a good group. I mean, yeah, I believe a lot it. of my mom's friends from where she grew up and uh, friends of my dad. You know, it just is a great group, but um, I'm sure everyone I, – I know I was looking forward to that, and I was like, wow, did that just happen? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if there's anything else we necessarily need to get to. No, uh, I want to talk at some point about the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame stuff. Oh, yeah. But we'll do that when there's someone else. We're going to get someone on, Passon or Jonah Carey or someone – probably in the show after the Super Bowl show. So we can talk about that. Yeah, I don't know if I'll be there for that interview, so I'll just say real short, I'm not a baseball fan. Anyone that listens to this show knows I'm not. That is the worst play. That is the worst make-it-about-me move I have ever heard a sports writer make in not voting Maddox into the Hall of Fame. 14 guys did that. 14 guys? Yeah, he was 14. He's not even the number one all-time. Oh, I thought you meant 14 writers did that. Yeah, oh. 14 writers didn't vote for him. Really? Yep, he had, he got every vote but 14. Wow. I thought it was the one guy, because they made it about the one guy the that one said he'll guy, never vote him in, anyone from that era in on the first ballot. Right, and that's the guy who only voted for Jack Morris. I'm st- I still think that's the only one we know of. That So he's the only one that's come it. out. Right. But there's he didn't get 14 votes. What a joke! A guy yeah. that his entire career beat people with accuracy and never looked like some muscle-headed, big-headed steroid user. What an absolute joke that he doesn't get to get into the hall. If we had a chance, it is the stupidest process. Yep. of of any Hall of Fame vote. If we had a chance to ask 14 guys to tell us why they didn't vote for Maddox, all 14 of them would give us uh, I made it about me reason. Right. And Deadspin, I think it was Deadspin, yeah, their writer let people vote. Because it was Dan Levitard from ESPN gave his vote to Deadspin. You know, good for him. You know what I mean? Like, if these idiots are going to make it about them, he just gave his vote away basically mocking the system, and good for him, and he probably got killed for it. So He did, but what a great ploy for his media platform <laughs> sure he's got a television show on espn a radio show and i can't imagine that he didn't do record numbers in and around that but yeah so like i said since i may or may not be there for the interview i just wanted to get that out there that i i think that's totally embarrassing for that writer and i i hope he got not literally but like murdered from people commenting on his articles and stuff like that like that that's totally embarrassing like you couldn't play the game don't make it about you that, that that's ridiculous all right we'll be back All right, I want to thank everyone out there who has reached out to us over the break wondering where the hell we were for sticking in there with us and being back for another season of the show. I know Don and I are very excited to be back doing this again, and we're glad it really made us feel good, I think, during the time off that people cared that we were off. Because sometimes when you just do this show in this room, kind of, and it's just me and Don every week, can sometimes feel like we're just talking to each other. (laughs) So it's nice to know you guys are out there and you care. Also want to thank Lee Jenkins, uh, first and foremost, for being 
kinder to us probably than anyone we've met in the history of doing this and for being on for a record 17th time or whatever it was and want to make uh thank also mike halford for making his first appearance on the show don't forget you can find us on twitter at sports underscore casters you can email us the sportscasters at gmail.com and uh, you can find all this information and more at our website www.sports-casters.com. Next week will be the big uh, football Super Bowl show. Right. And uh, we're going to close things out with one last thing. All right, my last thing this week, one last thing from me, is uh, the NFL is considering eliminating the extra point, and good, I guess. I mean, it's a I meaning- like the proposal, too. Yeah, it's a meaningless play. Not meaningless, but it's a play that carries a lot of weight but is completed at something like a 99 point something percent clip so yeah i heard there was over a thousand of them kicked this year and five of them are missed yeah so you're talking the 99.5 something like that percentile um there are more i actually looked this up not today but just out of curiosity when my brother was over watching the games the one day there are more punts blocked than that there are more field goals blocked than that so uh, I believe there's more safeties than that. So you got a play that's as automatic as that, then why not just make it automatic? And like you said, when we discussed this before we started recording, the worst thing in football, and it's from a owner's standpoint or from a football, someone in like football, the business, business side, side is it, fine yeah, with it. Probably. It's fine with them. Right. But the worst thing about watching football for every single fan at home is, and I imagine it sucks even worse in the stadium but is you score a touchdown, God forbid the touchdown has to be reviewed, they go to commercial, they right. come back, kicks the extra point, go to another commercial, and then show the kickoff, which is, sometimes go to kickoff or commercial after that. And the kickoff now is almost always a touchback. Right. You know, So basically what you're looking at is a play that's 99% made, the extra point, commercial, Yep. and then they come back for a play that, is probably in the 80% now touchbacks We read and going a, back to commercial. I, I'd be interested to hear what happened. I'm sure nothing, but I remember an owner came out, and we discussed it on the podcast with some sort of proposal that instead of even having the kickoff, you would start with the ball fourth and maybe like 15, something like that. What they did is they came up with a play that had the same success rate as an onside kick because this would both eliminate the pointless kickoffs and eliminate the – collisions and onside the kicks injuries, that they right. hate. Uh, and I don't know what ever happened with that, but it was a really cool idea. If you wanted to go for an onside kick, essentially at that point, you would just be going for the fourth and 15 instead. But uh, that never happened. But at least they're being progressive in discussing just getting rid of the extra points. The only did, thing I could see caring about that is maybe the kickers. Did you mention what the proposal is? Oh, I don't think I did. Um, it's an automatic extra point. If you want it, if you want to go for two, you still go for two. But if you miss it, you it's, get it's, six. Then it's only six, right. obviously, right. So I think that's a cool idea. You know, uh, most of the time teams will just take the seven, and I think that's it's, fine. Right. And then if they want to go for the two, I'm all for things that kind of preserve because I like stats. I don't care about the history so much, but I do like stats. Like college, if we ever went to like a true college overtime system, that would mess with touchdown numbers because right. people would be throwing extra ones when they go to extra innings or whatever you want to call it in college games. So I'd be against that purely from a stat purist point of view. This doesn't really hurt anybody. Nobody's going to care that much about a kicker's total number of points in a year, right? I mean, who holds the record for scoring usually? Is it a kicker? Is it a running back? I remember looking to see if Colston was getting close to the Saints record for scoring. 
Okay. And he's millions behind Martin okay. Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that I mean, that's the only people that are going to care is, but Martin Anderson won't because he'll never be be caught if, <laughs> if right. the next kicker in line isn't yeah. getting extra points. All right. I hope it happens. Uh, one last thing for the show today, the first show of season four and first show we've done in quite a bit. While we were gone, and we talked about a bunch of stuff earlier that happened while we were gone, while we were gone, the WWE announced their plans for WWE TV, something that's kind of been brewing for a long time now. And they made official their proposal, which I think is really, really great and really interesting to see how it affects things because I think we could see more sports considering this. What the WWE is doing is they are going to create basically a on-demand network, which will cost $9.99 a month if you're willing to commit to six months at a time. I don't know if I've heard what it costs if you're only willing to go month to month, but I would guess it would be in the 12 to $13 range, I would guess. But either way, like you said about – I'm sure you're going to get to it, yeah. the pay-per-view thing. Yeah, the, the biggest thing – so basically what they're proposing is $9.99 a month, and if – all you cared about was the pay-per-views, which the WWE has one a month now. They charge $40 for them on a normal month, and I think WrestleMania is $60. That's now included in the network. So if you already bought the pay-per-views, I heard if you bought them all, it was in the $600 range. So you'd basically go in from that to $60 every six months, so $120 a year. So it makes it a no-brainer for their current fans. Sure. And for someone like me, who isn't really a fan of their current product, but still gets sucked into the DVDs that they put out uh, because of the nostalgia aspect of it, they're going to have a huge, huge on-demand library that's going to include every pay-per-view they've ever had, um, episodes of Raw, original programming like the um, – what did I say it was? The Legends House, which is going to be like right, the right. surreal life for past – WWE wrestlers, which I'm sure is going to be a circus and potentially entertaining. <laughs> and um, it's just going to be something really interesting to monitor just because sports leagues make a lot of money on TV and rights fees. People spend a lot of money for that. Those revenue streams have changed the way free agency goes in baseball and obviously has changed football quite a bit. There's talk that the NFL is going to split up the Thursday night package and share it with one of their partners and only have half on the NFL network and then have half on some other network just basically because they're creating another basically billion dollars in revenue, you know, however many years. Right. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of success the WWE has with this. The one, I guess, negative is DirecTV has already said they're going to look into seeing if carrying pay-per-views makes any sense for them anymore. Because oh, the WWE okay. was still planning, I think, on selling their pay-per-views. Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, if... if right. You, you don't want to, to buy the network, right, fine. Right. You can buy the pay-per-view here, you know. But it'll be interesting to see how this model of getting the product to the fans is going to be. And it's going to work, you know, PlayStation 4 and 3 is going to have it available. Uh, you're going to be able to access it on their app, which is available on Apple and Android. Uh, it's going to be available on those... What are they called? Rodokus or whatever? Roku. Roku. Uh, I'm pretty sure Apple TV as well. Mm -hmm. They said there's a format they weren't legally uh, allowed to announce, and I was assuming that that was Apple TV. Uh, but basically it's going to be 
everyone is going to have probably some way to access it. Like I, you know, everyone probably at this point has a smartphone or a tablet or a PlayStation or a whatever Xbox or right. a Roku or whatever. You'll figure out a way, I guess, if you want it. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to see. So we're going to watch uh, the WWE, which regardless of what you think about it, uh, they have pioneered things that have spread out into other sports, pay-per-view specifically. Sure. They were at the cutting end of that, and then look at how that changed boxing and UFC and things like that. So we'll be interested to see uh, how this works out for Vince McMahon and the WWE.